Um, you all can be seated. Thank you. This is actually, uh, we, we never know, uh, Resident hasn't had the greatest history of uh, non-Sunday events and services, and so it's good to see, actually, all of you all here. You never know if two people are going to show up or not, and um, I'm thankful, uh, especially because uh, I hope tonight will be a treat for you. Uh, as we were laying out the sermon series, um, it became a little complicated exactly where to land the resurrection or the crucifixion. Uh, I think the way Easter works, uh, it's, it's much more of an emphasis on the resurrected life than the crucifixion. And so, um, but we had other things that, that we really wanted to cover leading up to that. And so tonight gets to be uh, the focus. Uh, and I think Good Friday, rightfully so. And as we go, uh, there'll be some call and response liturgies. Uh, it's purposely dark up here. I hope that's okay. Um, there'll be some call and response liturgies uh, for you all to participate in. Uh, we will do what... Um, is often called a tenebrae style service. Uh, we will extinguish these candles as the service goes. Um, there's, it's a long history of services like that, uh, and um, we, we will uh, reflect back on that history, at least in that practice. Uh, and uh, Cole will sing intermittently throughout. Uh, so if you've come to our, good, our Christmas Eve service, uh, we'll do a little bit of talking. There'll be a song, a little bit of talking, there'll be a song. Um, and feel free to stand, but you don't have to. Uh, Cole, does, Cole shouldn't have to say it every single time. Uh, but uh, if he starts singing and you want to stand, feel free to stand up. Uh, but if not, uh, feel free to sit. And I think at least one of those songs is meant to be reflective, meant to be kind of listened to as opposed to sung along with. And so, um, yeah. And at some point, uh, it becomes an uh, interesting question. Uh, certainly, the, the big question of why did Jesus have to die? And we've covered some of that. Uh, when we spoke through the series, we, we covered the Last Supper. And I would argue that Jesus made pretty explicit why he had to die. He connects it uh, to the Passover itself, connects it to the idea of, of death passing over, that he would become the, the lamb, the sort of substitute idea. It's, it's a great, it's a big theological idea of atonement, but, um, and we'll still talk about some of that tonight, but I also want to ask the question of why did Jesus have to be crucified? You have a sovereign God who can choose 10,000 probably different ways to ultimately die. And there's other ways that he could have been the sacrifice. Some priest could have killed him in the temple or something like that. That could have been just as theologically meaningful, particularly as a Jew, but... Why do you have to be crucified? It's a unique question. Of all the ways to die, why that one? Because it's, it's a, it was a form of punishment. I mean, the Romans perfected the sort of torture that the crucifixion was. And um, it, it's unique in all of history in, in how it was utilized. And uh, for, for the Romans, they used it particularly against um, those who would challenge the state. Uh, it wasn't used for every crime, uh, certainly. And so uh, even the thieves on the cross, uh, most commentators would believe that they were thieves connected to uh, a rebellion movement. And so they probably would have been um, part of an insurrectionist group to begin with. And, and so um, it was enemies of the state that were crucified. And even no matter how many movies you might have seen, um, crucifixions were often much lower to the ground than uh, we often see in movies. Uh, they were kept close to eye level. Um, it was meant to draw out the shame of the moment. Uh, most people crucified were naked. Um, and so um, it was this purposeful, long, excruciating, shameful practice. And there's a little bit of us, uh, particularly in Western context, that that whole honor and shame conversation is, is a little bit lost on us. Um, I know Rory and, and um, 
his crew will teach out of the 3D, the 3D gospel where they'll talk quite a bit about uh, shame and honor uh, and how that um, plays into the Bible as well. And Good Friday, the crucifixion was certainly that. This practice of bringing intense shame to the individual beaten, tortured, and crucified. So why the cross? Well, we're going we're to talk about that as we go. And we're going to talk about the idea of triumph as well. Triumph, uh, the word, uh, particularly uh, in its history, was connected to um, a sort of uh, a march celebration. Uh, this, this would be uh, connected to um, almost, uh, it, it connected originally to Dionysus uh, and eventually to Zeus and then to generals and then to the emperor. This, this practice of having this large processional and there are all these pieces of the procession tied into the story. And tonight we're going to talk about that procession too. Uh, we're going to look at Mark's gospel. And of all the gospel writers, Mark is the most Roman. Uh, church history has it that Mark was actually a scribe for Peter, uh, who was preaching to the Romans. And Mark's um, crafting his gospel during this time. It has a particular Roman flair, it's Roman words throughout it, it's Roman characters, uh, it, it, it just definitely has that, and I would argue the crucifixion is that much more honed in. <clears throat> I'm not going to get into a class on how the Bible was formed, but at the same time, it's important to note that these gospel writers have purposes and agendas and a crowd that they are thinking through as they write their books. And each of the crucifixion scenes in each gospel has its own little nuances and variations and Mark's are particularly Roman. And I would argue Mark is making a big theological point. And we will see the unique story of that cross as we go through Mark. But for now, we're going to speak a liturgy back and forth to each other. And then Cole will sing some more. So here it will be on the screen. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. As one with, from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was laid the punishment that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. And now I'll pray a prayer of confession. All we like sheep have gone astray, God. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord, you have made, you have laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. So by Jesus' day, this practice of, of triumph, of triumphe, was reserved only for emperors. And uh, probably been about that way for about um, 75 years. Multiple emperors had this own practice of what it looked like to basically become coronated as a king. And they all have their own practices. And Nero is probably the one that we have the most details of. And they all have ways that they would um, go to their thrones. And it would be sort of a liturgy of the emperor taking his position as emperor. And the first thing that would happen, it's important to ask these questions. All right, what was that like? Well, the first thing that would happen is uh, the, the process would begin with the praetorium. The praetorian guards are often the ones we think of with the red feathered crowns on their heads. They were uh, sort of the, the leaders of the army and the, the sort of royal guard of the emperor. 
They uh, had their own. Uh, you basically couldn't be king unless you ultimately also had the buy-in of the praetorian. And they were basically your personal army as the emperor. And so the praetorian guard had their own special role. And they would be the start of this process. You would go to the praetorian first. Otherwise, you could not be king. Matthew 15, verse 16 this is the beginning of Matthew's telling of the story. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. Just so you know, the Greek word there is the praetorium. It really is the place where the praetorium guards are. And they called together the whole battalion. Mark includes these details, unique to his gospel already. These details of the praetorian guards showing up. The next step in the process for an emperor is they would be given a robe and a crown. There was a unique purple robe that was given to royalty. They would actually often take it off the statue of Dionysus or Zeus and give it to the emperor just to keep driving home the sort of godlike state that the emperor was sort of treated in. And so that purple robe would be taken off of the deity and handed to the king, to the emperor, to put on them. And then a crown would be given to them as well, a golden crown. Once again, uh, this golden crown had a representation of the godlike state of these emperors because by this point in Rome's history, that was sort of become a normative emperor worship. Verse 17, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And the next step, the praetorium who are standing around as this process is happening, as the robe is being put on them, as the crown is being put on them, they would suddenly yell, hail Caesar, hail Caesar, imperator, which really means uh, um, the, the dominator, the one who conquers. And they would scream and yell, Hail Caesar, Hail Caesar, Hail Caesar, giving their approval of the king. Verse 18. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with, with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of a purple cloak, cloak and, let, and put him his own clothes on him. So once again, this picture of shame, this mocking, this bringing down of this person in all their thoughts is a a challenge to the emperor's throne. And they bring more and more shame piled onto Jesus in this moment. Let's read this liturgy. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Don't be far from me, because distress is near. There's no one to help. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments amongst themselves and they cast lots for my clothing.
At this point, the procession would begin. They would leave the praetorium and head along the Via Sacra. And they would start their walk and the crowds would be lining the streets. There'd be much fanfare. There was even incense that would be burned, super expensive incense. Uh, And so even this imagery, uh, Paul will pick up on in 2 Corinthians when he talks about the triumph and the incense coming along with the triumph. And they'd be carried along and there would be much fanfare once again, hailing him Caesar. And in the processional, there would also be um, an item for sacrifice. There would always be a sacrifice at the temple when he finally got there uh, at uh, Jupiter's temple when Caesar would arrive. There would be a sacrifice made there and the sacrificial animal would be uh, brought along as well. And the instrument of death would be brought along as well. The axe or whatever else was killed, uh, used to kill whatever animal the emperor had chosen. And so in this procession, you had the animal, you had the instrument of death coming alongside. So let's continue in verse 20. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And so you have, I would argue, the object of sacrifice as well as the instrument of sacrifice. And a fun little nerdy note, um, Mark mentions uh, Rufus and uh, Alexander. um, And later on in the book to the Romans uh, that Paul writes, he points out Alexander and Rufus are in, in Rome. Uh, which becomes even more fascinating when this group of people in Rome, these new believers, first hear Mark's gospel. I wonder if or, uh, these two boys are sitting there going, my dad, my dad carried Jesus' cross. But they would keep their procession going and they would go to Capitol, uh, Capitol, Capitoline Hill. Uh, Rome is called the city of seven hills because uh, it's, like the seven boroughs of Rome, seven different hills that most of the neighborhoods are built on. Capitoline was its own unique hill, and it had a history itself. Uh, legend has it, Capitoline actually means head, uh, and legend had it, has it that when they first kind of dug into the ground there, they found um, this intact skull uh, connected to uh, either Remus or Romulus. And so you had this place called Head Hill, or it could be called Skull Hill. <clears throat> and they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And then continuing with what feels like some of these interesting tidbits, next for Caesar, they would offer him wine. There would be an offering of wine to the Caesar and he would take the cup, but then he would often refuse it. He would take the cup and often pour it out. And it was meant to be the symbolism. I am the rising God. I have need of nothing. Even the luxuries of life are below me. And so Caesar would then refuse this cup. Verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. And he did not take it. Now this becomes one of those more interesting tidbits that would argue Mark is rearranging some of the details on purpose. Because in the other gospel writers, Jesus has been already crucified, and then he's offered wine um, or vinegar, uh, depending on which gospel you're reading. And it's put on a hyssop branch, which, if you know some of your history, hyssop was basically toilet paper in the first century. 
And so in those gospels, it is meant to be this mocking gesture, gesture towards Jesus, that they're just being crass with this Jesus on the cross. But Mark moves it here, before Jesus is crucified, in a way, I would argue, to point out this parallel, in a way to do that. And not only that, it speaks of wine mixed with myrrh, which is really, historically, as we can tell, some of the most expensive wine you can get. Um, There's another people group that had mixed it with myrrh, and it became a, a kind of a more precious commodity. And so this is like high-end wine given to Jesus, yet he refuses it. And so we continue with this practice. And it begins, in some ways, to start bubbling up. That if you're a, a hearer of Mark's gospel, if you have watched this proclamation for 14 chapters of this guy who's, who's a Messiah. That's the starting line of Mark's gospel, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the Son of God, who's coming to proclaim a kingdom. That's his first line in Mark's gospel. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. There's a king and a kingdom. That's actually what um, the whole genre of gospel is about. Um, the, the, the term, the euangelion, the gospel, uh, it, it's, a, it's an actual literature genre that was used uh, particularly by, by Roman and Greek people to proclaim a new king, proclaim great victory. It was a way to speak about um, the, 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 the triumph of kings or generals. And so when the gospel writers come along and use that term, use the word euangelion, they're implying something to their audience to say, I'm proclaiming a victory. And so Mark starts pointing out, and I don't know the details. We can have an apologetic conversation of exactly how this gets arranged and things like that. But I think Mark is very intentional to draw out in our brains, if we were a Roman listener to the story, that at this moment, when he's being put on a cross, when he's being shamed, when he's being brought down, this is a moment of triumph, not failure. This is a moment of victory, not defeat. Let's read this liturgy. <clears throat> when we stray from the path on which you lead us, you, O oh God, offer grace that invites us back to your ways. When night surrounds us and we are fearful and lacking vision, you, O oh God, are the light that finds, surrounds, and guides. When the world groans under the bonds of oppression, violence, and indifference, you, O oh God, empower your people to offer a balm of courageous compassion and peacemaking. When the curtain has ripped, the thunder has rolled, and the world appears to have lost its Savior, you, O oh God, are our hope for victory. We wait for you. Amen. At this point, Caesar and company would get to the temple. And at this point, they would place on the altar the animal of sacrifice and they would, they would kill it. And they, like many other cultures, it wasn't unique to Jews or Christians. They would um, certainly, um, the blood flowing out of the animal was meant to be purposeful, was meant to represent some form of a sacrifice. And they crucified him divided his garments amongst them, casting lots for them to decide what each would take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. 
And then Caesar would, at this point, um, take his throne as Lord and God. This would be the moment, the true installation moment of Caesar. And it was custom that Caesar would be flanked on his right and left, usually with uh, insiders and individuals, sons, um, sort of their second-hand um, leader, whatever it may be, they often were flanked on one side or the other. And the inscription on the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. An added detail that doesn't fulfill Old Testament, but it certainly makes sense if you're trying to tell the story of the triumph of a king. And then the crowds would exclaim Caesar at this point. So now all the crowds are gathered at the temple. They would see Caesar now sitting on his throne and they would shout, Hail Caesar, Caesar is Lord and God. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also, so also the chief priests and scribes and mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, can he not save himself? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So once again, at this great moment of triumph, it's juxtaposed with the shame of this crowd mocking him on what is a state criminal's cross. And the next in the Caesar practice, there was often a look out for a sign. Legend goes back to Julius Caesar that at his memorial, there was a comet that went through the sky and there, he suddenly got deified that this was a sign from the heavens that Julius Caesar is taking his throne as a god. Now, each in the line of Caesars has this sort of moment, including eclipses, including earthquakes, including all of these things as a sign that they are truly sent from the heavens. And when the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth It's a unique way that I think Mark is really trying to drive this home. And it becomes a question for the early church. What, what do we do about this Jesus who died on the cross? I mean, we could, we could talk about a lot about Jesus, but this cross thing is hard. That's why Paul will say things like, for the word of the cross, not the word of Jesus' death, the word of the cross itself is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what it does is God made foolish the wisdom of this world. For since the wisdom of God and the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And you got to imagine the storyline of Rome, the storyline even of a lot of Israel at this moment, storyline of the Greeks. It's all about power, might, conquering. You destroy your enemies. Pax Romana comes with an army stationed in your place. That's the kind of peace that Rome offered. It's a storyline of wealth. It's a storyline of position and title and power. And the storyline we hear is an inverted kingdom. 
where at the centerpiece is the most shameful practice in the Roman, in the Roman world. Yet there, the king is crowned. Yet there, the king of all kings, not the temporary emperor, but the true king of all kings takes his position as the king of this world. And through the cross, Jesus scorned the shame. In some ways, there's always this, um, like these buckets of shame and honor. There's a reason why things like shame killings exist in certain cultures to sort of make up for an unshameful act. And in some ways, Jesus took on shame so that we, no matter what our state in life, can be raised up with him, where he will eventually take his throne of honor. And we go there too. Yet we are called to live the opposite way. I mean, Philippians 2, this whole amazing poem that Paul speaks to the church is about how upside down what it looks like to follow Jesus really is. Where instead of power, we lay down power. Instead of might, we go for meek. Instead of dominance, we're willing to think of others' needs before ourselves. Instead of revenge, it's forgiveness. Instead of enemies, it's love. It's always backwards. And the world will fight against us. There's a Pax Americana just as much as there was a Pax Romana. And there's a way that the world will tell the story of what really matters in this world. And I think there's still a folly to the cross. It's not interested in likes on social media. It's not interested in comfort and vacations and experiences. It's not interested in any of that, and it's backwards. But in it, there's eternal, true, good life. And we'll talk about the atonement next time after this, but let's read this set of liturgy as well. Holy God, we are caught in the tension of light and shadow. Death and resurrection spoke the world into being. You illuminated the universe by your very speech, then filled the void with life. Indeed, you have filled the void of darkness and death, the empty promises of the abyss with new life and new creation. We look to you in the space between the world and the kingdom, longing for the fulfillment of your word and the work of the Holy Spirit. In the reign of Christ, our creator and king. Amen. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran to fill a sponge with sour wine, put on the reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So at some point, there's a question of why did Jesus have to die on a cross? But there's still the greater question of why was Jesus killed? Why was he forsaken? Why, as other gospel writers, he will cry out, it is finished on the cross. 
why the curtain get torn in two. And that brings us back to the very idea of atonement, a theme that's been running throughout this whole book from basically page three on. That sin has messed this world up. That there's a God of life and holiness. And now there's a world, humanity and the world itself, that's affected by death and sinfulness. And it breaks things apart. And we once started the story where we got to be in the place of life, holiness, shalom. But death has come. And how is death dealt with? Well, we see right from the early part, how do we keep life going? By death. Whether it's clothing Adam and Eve, whether it's the old Mosaic law, a tent is set up in the desert and the main practices of that tent, it's death. Blood itself would be sprinkled throughout this very symbol of life. It would be a shadow of the way that God would work. The way that God of life steps into a world affected by death. It's how he set up the economy of how we would be reconciled. As tone, the best way to think about it is sort of like, I've heard this feels so youth groupy, but like to make things at one tone. Um, to bring back things together as one. So the beauty of the storyline is that the instructions for God's people is here's what I need you to do to atone. I need you to keep doing this. I need you to go to the temple all the time. Once a year to do this massive version of it and go to the temple all the time to atone and to atone and to atone because we were always stuck in a cycle of sin, no amount of atonement, as the writer of Hebrews would say, would, would cleanse our consciousness. There was always before us a need for something else to die because there was always before us the endless cycle. But then the tables get reversed. And instead of us coming to the table to atone and to atone and to atone, God came to the table to atone. And the beauty is God is eternal. When we are finite, even when we go to atone, we bring sin with us to the atonement table. God brought his holiness in his perfect son. And it wasn't pigeons and goats and bulls. It was a human. There was never a one for one that the sin of my existence can be substituted for a pigeon but as a human, a human could take my place. And that's what Jesus did. And each of us, uh, I think one of the songs, our sins are written in his wounds. Love that line. Each of us has sins written into the wounds of Jesus. Each of us contributes to the giant pot of sin in all of humanity and all this world. We're incomplete. We have our flaws, we have our broken parts, we have ways that we don't follow what God has designed us to be. 
which is really the definition of sin. And the good news is that Jesus took it all to the cross. That's what was finished. So that there's some tremendous amounts of freedom that exists for us. And when we take communion, we won't do it tonight. There's something about Thursday that's really the communion night, and we'll celebrate it again on Sunday. But there's something about doing this every week. We remember that bitter sweetness of a God who was willing to suffer and be scorned and shamed and be willing to be humiliated in the worst of ways and ultimately die so that we might be saved and that we might be brought to a place of honor, that we might be made holy, that we might be truly atoned for. But now, because of his work, we can go before the Father Boldness, confidence. And we have eternal life from this point on. And the gospel writers don't speak of eternal life as one day when you die, then you get to go to some off, far off place of heaven and that's eternal life. They speak of eternal life starting the day you follow Jesus. And we will get more of a completeness as we go when God remakes the new heavens and the new earth. But until then, you get the start of eternal life now, of knowing the Father, of knowing the God of the universe who created you. And we may stumble forward and sin still, but those sins are dealt with 2,000 years ago. So on tonight, we remember that. And I love that we kind of do the reverse of, of Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve, we take the candle and disperse it to everybody and sort of this picture of the light coming into the world. But at the cross, there's almost the image of the light sort of coming to an end. It reminds me, I'm so ad-libbing now. It reminds me, though, of like, um, if you've ever seen, uh, um, dang it, uh, The Prestige. If you've ever seen that movie, it's a magician movie. It's got Christian Bale and um, Hugh, Hugh Jackman. Um, and... In that movie, uh, they're always like, there's some gamesmanship and their magicianship. And I won't give away too much of the end, or at least who comes out on top, but there's all this scheming, and one of the main characters thinks that he's won right at the end. And then you find out that the other character actually was always a step ahead. And I sort of picture the cross a little bit like that. That it feels like Satan's finally getting his victory. It feels like he's finally got his plans and he's finally defeated the God of the universe. He's finally snuffed out his son. And then you find out that God was always a step ahead. And as Jesus is laid in that tomb, God's just counting one, two, three, and he's going to reveal it all. We'll get there Sunday morning. But let's repeat this liturgy to close us out. God who created us suffers because of us. God who died upon the cross suffers for us. God who dwells within us suffers with us. And in God's suffering, we find hope. God, our suffering God, your story brings us salvation. Without you, the horrors of human suffering would be unbearable. Your story of life, death, and resurrection gives life meaning. Because of your suffering, a new world has broken into ours. Your suffering frees us from prison. Your suffering fills the hungry with good things. Your suffering frees us to live in love, joy, and peace. 
and in your eternal resurrection. I want us to sit in a rare moment of silence. I understand there's kids. Don't worry if your kids make noise. And we are okay. But we live in a world that is noise, distractions, phones, everything. And I want us to have a few moments of silence. I can almost imagine the disciples going home on Friday night, bewildered, dumbfounded, just sitting there staring at the wall. And may this be a moment to reflect, to reflect on your own sin, but to reflect on what Jesus accomplished in light of that sin.